everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Mike Adams, who is the CEO and co-founder of Green. Uh, really excited to have you here today to talk about AI and research. A very hot topic. Awesome. I'm excited to be here. Got JH here, too. Yeah, excited. Uh, we love Green. We use it a lot on our team, so that's always fun. And then, um, you know, we've always said, Aaron, I think that we try to stay away from, you know, topical things. Um, but I think mm -hmm. this topic is here to stay. So this will, I think, become an evergreen episode, even though it's uh, yeah. having a bit of a moment. Yeah, for sure. Evergreen sort of can start out with a topical. And this has been an interesting one where I can remember, you know, my last, my first sort of B2B job, there were these waves of the hot tech topics and it was like AR, AI, ML, all these acronyms, right? And it was kind of like the future promise that wasn't being delivered. And it feels like Recently with chat GBT, it was like, that was the moment. Fever pitch, AI is here um, and kind of past the hype stage and who knows what will happen, but seeing real use cases and enthusiasm. Uh, Mike, are you seeing that too? And how do you think about it in the context of research? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this conversation will be probably interesting in that none of us are professing to be, you know, AI experts, right? I think we're all kind of experiencing this, uh, moment in time. And in particular, you know, at Grain, we've been keeping an eye on these technologies because they provide very obvious solutions in theory to problems that our user base experiences every single day around trying to, you know, categorize information or synthesize it or summarize it. And all of a sudden it went from this kind of, as you mentioned, Aaron, like hypothetical, you know, fever dream to like, oh, wow, it can do that. And I feel like your average person is probably very limited into their exposure of what these large language models can seemingly suddenly do, even though they've actually been able to do this for a little while. I think it's just chat GPT that moved it into the consumer mind. And that application of the large language model of GPT-3 is really just like, one kind of niche application of it. And there's so much more power um, that is really there at our fingertips. And it's just a matter now of kind of like applying it to aid and augment the work that we do every day. Totally. Have you, have you gotten a sense from, you know, your user base within your team? Is this something that user researchers are kind of more excited about or maybe a little bit more fearful of it? Like, are they, you know, is it the, it's coming for our jobs thing? Or are people like, oh, this is going to help us so much or any read on that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's worth clarifying that at Grain, we have a lot of user researchers that love our product and use our product, but we're not like a tool for user researchers. We're definitely more like your kind of founder that's trying to do qualitative research and conversational research, um, or your kind of smaller, you know, UXR teams, or there's some larger UXR teams that have, you know, embraced Grain over more purpose-built tools because of the, uh, I would say, simplicity of being able to kind of pull out, um, select some text on a transcript, turn it into a clip and embed it everywhere to distribute that voice to the customer. So I think that's just a like important caveat first that I think the point of view I have is probably more like people who do research as, you know, Kate talks about from Atlassian more so than like the proper, you know, uh, research as a, as a function. But I would say that um, the kind of more informal side of research, there's been a lot of enthusiasm I've been seeing around just the idea of automating the busy work that I would normally have to kind of do myself or pay an intern or pay, you know, uh, some MTurk type of situation 
to go through and and uh, perform a transform on a conversation that was had and make it actually into an output that's useful. I mean, we're really not that far removed from when transcription used to be, you know, this exact same process. And I think transcription is and, and how ubiquitous and how useful and how helpful it is is a representation of kind of like 10 years ahead of where these large language models are in terms of the type of value that you can get from something you used to have to just like manually do super painful. It was really expensive to do. And so it's that sort of kind of a uh, monotonous um, busy work that in the line of work you end up kind of having to do because there isn't really anybody else to do it. And it's um, there's not an automated way to do it that uh, I think is, the most exciting part of the first wave of these large language models is being able to kind of automate away some of that. Yeah. Um, what applications are you most excited about as you think about, you know, I, the most viral post I've ever put on LinkedIn was sort of uh, poking fun at all the chat GBT speculation, right? And like, you know, everyone's an expert on this, but I think if we bring it down to earth and really talk about how in the near term, we're actually going to see this, technology applied, um, not just with chat GBT, but with, you know, actual applied AI in the context of grain and research, what are you most excited about? You know, we talked about saving time, getting rid of, uh, you know, tasks that could be automated. Yeah, totally. So I guess quick kind of preamble to that is like, my favorite thing is to watch Bing go crazy right now. Like if you're on it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like Bing's all like moody and like upset and like, uh, you're a bad user. I'm a good Bing. And so I think, you know, we're all on the same page around, you know, how limited and unrealistic, you know, it is to think that these models are, you know, going to, to come straight out the gate and, uh, and act in a way that we would expect them to. But that doesn't mean that we're um, not seeing immediate applications that are actually game changing around, um, you know, the, the work we do on a daily basis. So um, at Grain, we just opened up our like beta for Grain AI, where we have I would say three main features that we're doing um, using large language models, um, in particular using GPT-3 uh, um, on the backend. But one is just like summarizing the meeting down into its like core moments. And that idea has been there in similar products to Grain for decades. And we've never really bit the bait of the hype train because it doesn't really work. Um, and now all of a sudden it does. And it's pretty incredible and it's massively time-saving to be able to take a 30 minute meeting, see the six to seven bullet points that are most representative of the main ideas, kind of scan through it. And in the context of our product um, in the beta, you can kind of like click on the summary and then go to the actual underlying text and see what the substance is that the summary is kind of paraphrasing. And I found so far that it kind of takes that, um, that motion I'm not yet able to really just like take the summary at surface level and be like, yeah, this is now the replacement to sitting in the meeting for 30 minutes or rewatching it at two times speed. But it becomes like markers to saving a huge amount of time um, around trying to get the essence or just get to the moments that I particularly find the most interesting or valuable. So that's like one application. The other one is like question and answer detection. And so that's, you know, pretty common application at the large language models, not just opening item models, but Cohere has this and a bunch of other um, API level services have built like question and answer detection. But what I find in particularly really interesting is not just the question and answer detection, but the question detection and the answer summarization. 
And that becomes huge time savings because again, you, we're really limited in, in the day, you know, how we spend our day and nobody wants to sit there and like rewatch a thing they were a part of, or maybe even weren't a part of, they're trying to catch up. And what you really want is to be able to just kind of dive in and get as close to the like true essence of what occurred or what was said as possible um, without having to spend that entire time. So like the question and answer detection becomes a really, um, mm-hmm. I would say question and answer summarization becomes a huge time savings to doing the sort of kind of synthesis analysis work that you need to do as opposed to, and it just is removing some of the monotonous labor of having to um, kind of just read the entire thing from in its raw format and just kind of start your consumption in a more summarized place to dive into the right spot. Yeah. And, and we know from our research, researchers don't like doing that work, which is intuitive, but it's the most painful part of the process. And to your point, you could imagine, you know, the AI robots can can do this well, whereas no participant wants to uh, sit in a user interview with a robot, right? <laughs> That's a good one for humans to probably stick with for a while. Yeah, I think like, the interviewer's job is going to be safe from robots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's um. There's an example that um. I know it was popularized in, in some books, and I forget where else I've seen it, but you know, when some of this stuff years ago was starting to come along and people were trying to make computers really good at learning chess, the um, the thing that came out very early on was, you know, it's really hard to get a human to become an expert level chess player. You know, it takes a lot of practice and skill. Um, also very hard, you know, back then when things were a little bit more limited to get a computer to be, you know, at like that sort of grandmaster level as well. But what they found along that journey was that if you pair like a novice human player with kind of a somewhat sophisticated computer model, you really quickly actually could have through that hybrid a really powerful like competitive player. Um, and I feel like this is kind of in a similar spot where I think if you try to outsource your synthesis and insight analysis fully to the models, there's going to be some gaps or you know some things that maybe you can't fully trust um, just yet. But if you're not leveraging them at all, like you're just it's you're, you're not taking advantage of the time savings that could be really helpful in, in kind of getting that pairing where it's pointing you and, and doing some of the 80-20 work, but still needs some human review and, and like cleanup on top of it. I don't know if that kind of tracks with what you were saying, Mike. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, so one area where I think folks that are just exposed at like the chat, chat GPT level and haven't done any like prompt engineering in, you know, so for example, you can go to the open AI playground and you can say really simple. I would actually recommend people to do this, grab like some transcription or some other text that you want to like find some information inside of and say, here is some text, paste your text in the playground here is the prompt and then write your prompt below it and say, find all of the, you know, concerns. Or I even had one the other day, which was estimate the user's NPS mm. <laughs> on this transcript and um, they es- and, and, and explain why. And so the output mm. of that prompt was actually pretty phenomenal. And it was like the estimate, the ENPS is, you know, eight out of 10. And here are the reasons why. And then I went back to the transcript to try to kind of trace the conclusion of like an eight out of 10 versus a, you know, detractor, like a two out of 10. And it actually tracks really well. Um, But it's like identify the feature, the feature requests of the users or the bugs that are mentioned. And like those types of moments are actually able to be identified automatically in a way that can save the actual research or, or the person doing the research a huge amount of time of just that like busy work of having to kind of go through and find it. And so there's kind of those two layers on an individual 
a, like an interview where it's either like save me time by pulling out the things I'm interested in so I don't have to scan through it or like perform a cognitive kind of evaluation um, on what what like could be the case like that ENPS, like what's your estimation mm. or, the, or, or sentiment. Both of those are pretty like, I would say powerful and realistic current applications technology. But right now it's kind of like limited off of your imagination of what prompts you can come up with. And then the output being like right there in like a playground, because there's just not that many tools yet that have been built that make doing that sort of work on a body of like specific text um, that that you're trying to understand, like the transcript from an interview, for example. Um, there's just not a lot of like tools yet that are, are putting that power into an end user's hands. Yeah, I like the, the call out on the prompt engineering, because I do think that's such an important part of it that is, you know, not that familiarized for people yet or, or not that common. It's like, you know, if you give somebody a, a spreadsheet, an Excel file or whatever, you can use it in all these powerful ways, but you have to kind of know how to lay out the data or what functions or things are in there. And it's not the exact same, but you do kind of need to learn how to use the tool to maximize the benefit from it. And um, that's probably something to your point that people should start to find kind of cheap and clever ways to play with so they can start to internalize like how you can take advantage of this and where you can maybe deploy it to, to save yourself some time going forward. I totally agree. I, th I think prompt engineering is going to be like one of the core skill sets that everybody who does like cognition related work is going to have to get pretty good at because, you know, it's garbage in garbage out and the garbage in is the quality of the um, text you're adding in and the quality of your prompts. And it is just like learning how to, how we all learned how to Google search, right? You can kind of do the easy way, which most people do. I forget, what's it like 10, 20% of Google searches are unique and never been performed before, but you can do all the advanced operators and get sophisticated with it. Same thing. It's a new sort of uh, model of interacting with outputs and the dialogue back and forth, but um, yeah put reddit at the end of your time, <laughs> the best running pro tip yeah if you want to really go down yeah. a rabbit hole reddit.com will dramatically improve the likelihood of getting a good answer yeah yeah but to your point you were talking about using these sort of api protocols and pulling in ai um that others had done i'm curious just to go below the hood a little bit and when you think about building versus buying ai with your own product development like um how do you think about that is that ai come far enough? Um, how do you make those decisions? Yeah. So OpenAI and I think there's Cohere and obviously Google and, and, and others that are the actual API providers of these large language models. They're in a pretty good spot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I liken it to, or I think about it like kind of AWS almost where, yeah, you could manage all your own servers and you could do like all of that work on your own. There's like ways to do it. But it's just like so much easier and the economies of scale make it such that like you're never going to want to, you know, manage your own server farm, just use Amazon Web Services or some other cloud server. And that's kind of where we're at on these large language models is that what you're um, I think there is kind of basically a a skip function that's that's occurred around like um, doing custom bespoke uh, machine learning yep. um, in the application or context of a uh, like a product or a UI that all of a sudden now is just like leapfrogged by, you know, proper prompt engineering and uh, kind of systems design such that you can kind of feed specific information to one of these large language models with a really good prompt and then get something out that is just dramatically better in terms of a machine learning prediction result than you could if you were trying to like 
train a bespoke model on your own. And so um, there's also that specifically in the context of kind of like generative AI, where you're trying to um, uh, like get the large language model to produce, you know, either text or a result. There's a ton of other applications around classification and embedding around identifying patterns, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of totally different beast from, from what I'm just mentioning, but it's still in the same boat of it being valuable to kind of leverage some of these just large language mo- models and um, open AI protocols that are actually, you know, going to be significantly better than trying to build it kind of bespoke in house. And mm-hmm. so um, it, I, I kind of think about it similar to that kind yeah. of move to the cloud yeah. that uh, happened a decade ago. Yeah, I'm just playing out the the ethics and the sort of multiplier effects here, because if you have these two or three main APIs that become embedded in every technology we're using, we better hope they have good training models, right? We've talked a lot about the ethics of research that goes into, right? Who do you talk to to develop um, uh, what become the predominant patterns and things like this? So yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how that all plays out, hopefully for the better and better all the time. Well, in the nature of the, like, of the problem is that, you know, these are all based on neural nets where right. the output is feeding back in and becomes input to the next iteration right. of the output. Right. And so it's kind of constantly um, going to be evolving and changing. So there's both the com- kind of component of, you know, the pe- the arbiters of the models, but right. then also, you know, there's this nature of this unpredicted nature of the fact that as we use these models, it feeds back in and, and kind of changes um, the, the, the nature of them. Right. Yeah, yeah, it gets a little circular. Um, you know, we were talking talking about this, you know, something you've kind of ramped up on and, and developed a better understanding as kind of, you know, the hype has been proven out. Any ideas for how people who are maybe seeing these headlines but haven't played with the tools firsthand or just don't feel familiar, like what are good ways to get started and kind of cut your teeth on what these things can do and, and how to, you know, inform yourself a little bit more? Yeah, really good question. So I... My background's in education and I love uh, visual learning. That's how I like to learn. It's kind of my style. And so you mentioned mid-journey and uh, um, the kind of image-based AI applications. There's a bunch of them, but the one I've been playing around with is mid-journey. I actually think just like joining the mid-journey community and getting in those discords and seeing what people are doing and following like the mid-journey, like subreddit and seeing those outputs, that for me has been super interesting because usually there's a tie between the prompt that was written and the output of that prompt. And for me, it's just a matter of kind of like training my brain around like as a prompt engineer, as a, not to get, a, not to get too fancy, but like you are the writer of the prompt to get the output and the best outputs and these incredible images that are being generated um, using AI are really a, are, are a function of the quality of the uh, both the input. Sometimes you will feed it like a base image to do things on top of. And so you can do like a transform on top of like a photo you took or a drawing or a sketch that you had and then turn it into something truly incredible if you kind of know the sophisticated prompts and and what is available um, in terms of what the, 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 the model can understand and then apply to get the output that you'd like. So I would recommend spending some time as weird as it would seem to like screw around with, you know, uh, with prompt engineering for imagery. Um, it might not have a direct application, but it is one of the best, um, I think, ways of being able to really understand how we will be working with these models. And even though right now there's just kind of a lot of abstraction 
um, in terms of knowing even what are the parameters you could put into the prompts that you're writing to get that output. Like one quick example of this that kind of I slept on is I, I used to teach at a coding boot camp when it was brand new. And I would, um, one of our students' uh, project was like AI images that they were outputting. And I remember thinking it was so like silly, but they were so excited about it. They were like, this random, you know, smudgy compilation of pixels was generated by AI. And they were so excited about it and they wanted to kind of create a consumer application so everybody could make their, you know, AI images. And obviously they were just eight to, you know, seven to eight years too early, but that was the kind of same um, basis that now has a pretty like substantial following. And so that's like suggestion number one is start to just kind of like learn how prompt engineering works. And then I think suggestion number two is what I mentioned a little bit earlier of like, just get into um, OpenAI's playground. Um, it's just playground.openai.com. Um, and like I mentioned, you can, there's a bunch of different examples out there, but it's just like, here is some text. Here is, you know, put the text in there. Here is a prompt and just play around with what questions you might have of the thing that you gave it that it can give you, you know, in, in response. And obviously these are all examples of kind of the generative AI application that I, I, is just one of the elements of everything that's going on right now. But I think it's kind of the, the tip of the iceberg and the most exciting way to, to explore right now. Hmm. Totally. The, um, the community piece, I think, on the prompt, en prompt engineering is really important. Because I do think even if you're very creative and you're playing with these things kind of in isolation, after like, you know, a half hour almost even, you're going to like start to hit, the, hit the limits on the ways that you think to poke it and, and throw prompts at the model. And then if you see other people, it just it continues to just unlock of like, oh, I didn't realize I could put that kind of modifier on there or do this. And um, I think you just need to kind of build that web. And so I think being in a community is, is a really good idea. The, um, the thing that I think has been really interesting and maybe it'd be a good one for researchers is I think it's really obvious to go to the like synthesis idea of like, here's a transcript, you know, boil this down and, and certainly would encourage people to play with that. But I know, um, I think Aaron, you were playing with this um, on some other aspects of research of like, write me a screener survey for this type of profile. And maybe you'll come up with some questions you wouldn't have thought of that you could weave into your own or, you know, um, you know, ask it to describe like the persona that you're talking to. And where could I find those people? Like, where can I find machine learning? It might surface communities you don't know about, you know, and help with your recruiting or whatever. So I think there's like lots of adjacent things within research that people should also kind of poke on to see what's possible. And again, you probably won't use it 100% the way it is outputted, but it might unlock some stuff for you as well. I think that's another really good suggestion is this almost kind of, remember the ask Jeeves? It's like, <laughs> it's like right. ChatGPT is actually the manifestation right, of this problem. Right com or ask Jeeves where you're like, hey, Jeeves, could you go tell me where all of my like target audience lives and what communities I should join? Yeah. And that's what like, you know, even just inside of chat GBT, um, it's it is does have the limit that I, I believe the data set is only up until like 2021. So it's not like going to be the most up to speed. But I believe very soon Bing is actually like has a much more recent um, data set. But I think that's another great application is like, just asking kind of questions related to your audience that you're trying to understand or serve. I've also had it generate like a user interview guide for me um, mm -hmm. uh, for our, our product. And then um, I've also, what I like as well is it has kind of like the aggregate understanding of the internet basically in terms of, even if it's a very highly specialized and technical result, it will kind of like distill down the essence of like common belief of an expert community, mm -hmm. which I find to be really useful as I'm like 
what are the most you know common um, evaluative user you know testing questions that I should you know or, or user interview questions I should ask, and I've actually found that output to to be pretty great, and then it can inform the the interview guide I go in with. We should have it find us podcast guest and write all the conversation guides. We're set. We're gonna save so much time. Um, but yeah, it, it occurs to me there's sort of like there's how do you how do you now how will you soon use AI as a researcher to make your job better, easier, more efficient, so you can focus on the stuff that you know humans are really good at. And how do those two come together? To your point, JH, like um, if the AI can help, how do you kind of insert yourself at the right moments? But then there's also, like we were talking about this prompt engineering for researchers to have these new ways of interacting with technology top of mind, because that's going to impact how you think about building great products and how you understand the changing relationship, like the sort of macro relationship of consumers to technology, because it feels like this is going to you know, result in sort of slowly and then all at once kinds of changes potentially. I can't remember exactly whose tweet it was or the, 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 the exact phrasing, but the gist of it was like uh, this kind of new, these new models are less like one Albert Einstein and more like a hundred high schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, they're smart, they're, they're capable of right. following instructions, but they're not going to like, you know, make these incredible connections that, you know, right. that, that you can even make. I think for a while, for a long, long while, I think that that's going to be our job to do. Yeah. I like that analogy. <laughs> yeah. I think it's gonna be really interesting too to see how and where these things manifest in different product experiences. Like, you know, you were describing, Mike, how you all are playing with it in grain and, and introducing some beta capabilities. But kind of like what you were saying even earlier with the chat GPT interface, it's like the, the underlying model had been available for a while, but like putting the chat interface on top of it kind of made it click for people. And it's like, oh, this is accessible. I can use this. And I think that'll be true for a lot of like research related products of not just a matter of having the AI built in and having access to language models, but it really does become about the experience of how and where you present it to people, how they're able to interact with it. And, and even though maybe people, everyone's using the same API behind the scenes, um, you can still deploy it in very different ways, right? Like lots of apps are built on top of AWS, but they're all pretty different. Um, and so I'm just very curious to see how that'll play out and just, um, yeah, I don't know if you've seen anything interesting within other research product products or just in, in products in general that uh, seems to be catching on. Yeah, to be honest, I feel like there's not a lot yet. It's, um, I think you, you, you're totally right that these models have been around for a really long time. There's definitely a capability improvement shift that has happened with kind of GPT-3 to GPT-3.5. Like, I'm super excited about GPT-4. Um, it's unclear what sort of kind of step changes, but it should be an improvement in terms of that accuracy. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been um, the ability to do these types of things for, for quite a bit longer than the hype around this stuff. And it is the chat GPT interface that I think has kind of made it accessible for everybody. And I think this year and in the next coming years, it's going to be a really exciting time as really the, the innovators that are tr trying to solve specific user problems. Um, like in our case, it's, you know, this kind of meta meta application of uh, building products for people who are building products. Um, but uh, that is going to be, I think, a really exciting thing to kind of like watch as it happens over the next, uh, I would say, six to nine to 18 months. Um, but there isn't a lot out there and I'm watching it pretty closely. And I think there is definitely a lot of 
roadmap shifting that has occurred um, on these types of products over the last, I would say, three to four months. It definitely has shifted our roadmap, um, but it's, uh, I think, going to be kind of a, an interesting kind of wave of like, wow, that's incredible. And then that thing went from being incredible to standard table stakes that everybody has to have, you know, in order because that's the expectation of what people want because it's so powerful and useful. And so it's, I think of kind of like right now as being very likely to be similar to the kind of 2008 when mobile was brand new and all of a sudden you had a computer connected to the internet in your pocket with a GPS location. And it took a few years to kind of realize what that meant for food delivery or, you know, car ordering services and stuff like that. Um, but it's going to be, I think, a, a pretty quick wave towards the, the innovators that are recognizing the, the opportunities that are unlocked because of how powerful these models are. You mentioned your roadmap shifting a bit. Is there anything you can tell us about that you didn't already? Any sneak peeks or anything you're excited about? Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned a few of them, yeah, but yeah. I would say we're pretty we're pretty early, frankly, on on a lot of these applications as well. And we're just in the middle of trying to make sure that the the applications of them are actually useful <laughs> and not um, just buzzwordy for the sake of you know buzz. It's like, oh my gosh, it it could do that. And it's like, yeah, but why? Yeah, right? Yeah. That's mm -hmm. kind of the main thing I think everybody right now that's getting shifted by these, uh, by, that's getting their roadmap shifted needs to focus on. And so it's very clear for us at, at a theoretical level that matches to these problems we've known that our, our user base wants solved from the beginning of Grain. Um, and so uh, there, I would say there's probably two levels at which we're working on it right now. One is at the individual interview level of just trying to make those easier to parse and to share and to break down other component parts and kind of the core you know value of grain has always been this like easy snippeting and highlighting that you can embed anywhere um, that kind of unlocks these pieces to, to to be shipped around on their own and atomized and so that's like one part of it and then the other part of it is kind of um, aggregating across many different conversations and so whether that be a specific kind of research project where you're talking to 10, 10 people about the you know using the same interview guide or just like more broadly, generally, you know, the fact that sales is talking to customers and generating insights on a daily basis, being able to actually kind of um, I first identify those those moments that are probably less interesting to the sales team and more interesting, say, to the product team, right. um, and then be able to actually kind of atomize and and distribute that content to a larger group of people. But there's definitely this other kind of thing going on right now, which is about this kind of democratization of this information and, and research being, you know, in less of a kind of formal process, process for most companies and more of, a, of an alignment exercise around the voice of the customer or the user. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of another application that, that we're definitely seeing and working towards is being able to just kind of free up, identify, free up and distribute those uh, those those moments and and kind of aggregate those patterns that can ultimately inform the decision making because that's really what it's all you know about is we're trying to understand a really hairy difficult qualitative problem so that we can make decisions around our roadmaps or around our copy or around whatever it may be and that those decisions are represented and rooted in reality of the people we're trying to serve awesome We've, um, you know, I think we've been on a pretty positive kick here. I think we're all, you know, optimistic about some things here. But if you are following the discourse around AI, uh, there are some people who are, you know, less enthused and, and I think some real concerns. Any thoughts on like where, you know, researchers might get burned as they try to like, 
leverage some of these things. You know, there's the whole like take our job piece, which I don't think we think is all that likely. Um, but there is, you know, as Aaron is touching on, like, you know, maybe bias in the models that you're unaware of. And it's, you know, pulling stuff out that you wouldn't have done it the same way. Or um, I think what you see in a lot of the chat GTP stuff or Bing stuff that, you know, gets kind of viral is like, it's very confidently wrong. <laughs> and so it seems like it knows what it's talking about. It's kind of like a bullshitter. And you're like, unless you know about the subject, subject you wouldn't maybe know that. And so like, where, where are some of the ways that maybe this could go wrongly, you know, so wrong for researchers in the short term? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of areas where it could be problematic. Um, one that probably comes to top of mind is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the author Kathy O'Neill, but she wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, so sweet little play on words there. But the premise of the book was a recognition that like algorithmic approaches to problem solving while they're fantastic in a lot of ways and, and can really help us to solve especially scale problems, they can become destructive and problematic in and of themselves, largely because they are representative of the bias of the programmers and the algorithm kind of weights themselves. And she goes into just like dozens of different um, instances around test scores or um, uh, you know policing and using uh, like algorithmic approaches to trying to... Um, understand where a police force should put, you know, the police in different parts of the city. And then you're like, yeah, but that's just like reinforcing because the data is that, you know, you're sending more there and it's just going to increasingly send more police presence to the place where there already was police presence, as opposed to like really maybe solving the problem and distributing it to, to solve the real underlying issue. And I think that that is absolutely a concern that is there is that we start to kind of remove some of that objectivity and just um, get almost uh, immune or uh, kind of ignoring the underlying bias that's there and that maybe even conflicting to our underlying instincts that we have as, as, as the builders, as the people that are you know, trying to under task with understanding this reality. Um, and so then the other part of it, I would say is like, I would say it kind of builds on that. It's not just about the bias, but in particular, just the uh, belief that it's right and it's correct because there's a certain amount of kind of intellectual rigor that is that I could see that I would personally have fear that starts to just kind of get outsourced. And I think that's why teachers are like afraid of chat GPT. You know, I don't know what percentage of the user base of chat GPT is like high school kids and college kids, but I think it's a lot. <laughs> and there, there's a good reason why they're concerned with that because you're, you know, removing the underlying rigor that generated that outcome. And inevitably over the next five to 10 years, academic institutions are going to have to figure out how to play with these tools as opposed to against them. And so because they're going to be the arm and extension of what this kind of rising generation of students is going to use to solve the problems that they have. But the fear is that, you know, if you never develop the underlying ability to, you know, write, you know, write effectively or write prose, you kind of lose those, you know, that, that benefit that you can gain as an individual. And I think there's probably a similar worry that could occur, you know, in this world of trying to understand, you know, qualitative problem or user base is that we start to just kind of trust the output as opposed to really looking at it with rigorous eyes and using it as an aid to draw our own work that we're doing where we're still in charge and control. And then you start to kind of just trust the output as valid, even though, you know, it oftentimes either could be factually incorrect or incredibly biased based on the, the model. Yeah. 
It's very interesting just thinking about that balance of how to teach fundamentals um, versus relying on machines. I'm just thinking about math and calculators versus having number sense and knowing how to add and what is that right balance, right? Because um, everyone's using a calculator computer for, for all of that. Um, but some baseline of number sense is obviously quite useful as well. And I think all of those calibrations will probably be changing as technology um, just changes and um, has more and more impact to. I think the calculator is a great example. I'm sure there were, it was, it was, uh, there was an uprising amongst, you know, grade school teacher, right. math teachers. Their the pencils calculator. and their long division. How Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. But, but to your point about the sense and the fundamentals, like, I think you can build off that, right? Of like, if you, maybe you don't know math super well and you're saying, you know, what's 12 times four and it comes back with like a hundred thousand, <laughs> I think most people would still be like, that feels <laughs> off. You know what I mean? And so there is yeah. a little bit of like being able to calibrate yeah, and exactly. you know, gut check exactly. it somehow. I think what I've seen and just like the, the beta features we've been using with grain is um, it's generally pretty, pretty dang good, but at least the way we're applying it is that um, every time it's generating some output that's representative of an idea or summation, it, at least on the principle of our design, it has to link back. We're like forcing the model to say, cite your source. Right. Like what point in the transcript did that, you know, come from? And then there's that ability to kind of tie it back and actually like, okay, maybe the question is summarized in these three sentences, but it's actually composed of 10 sentences in the transcript being able to like preserve the relationship between the source material and then the summarization of that, um, I think is an, an important thing to kind of preserve, to be able to have a reality rooting and not just kind of this outsourcing of like, I'm sure the calculator's right. Cause calculators, for example, have gotten to, you know, have, have been there for a long, long time around. We can trust them pretty regularly to be better at math operators than we are. But, you know, I think this uh, applications of LLMs and, in a more qualitative capacity are, are not quite as trustworthy. And, and, you know, I think there is uh, no actual assurance that they, they ever will be fully there. Mm -hmm. Right. And the math stuff is like deterministic, yeah. right? Like there's a right answer. Like when you do this operation, it's supposed to put this out. And if it's not, you can just say it's wrong. Whereas a lot of the large language model stuff is much more, you know, probabilistic and, and kind of subjective. And, you know, you ask it this prompt and there's actually not really a right answer. And so it's like, how right or truthy is this thing? And it's definitely a little messier. 100%. Mike, what are you excited about in the future? I think I'm excited about the creative work that can be done with more powerful tools that, you know, can get rid of a lot of the busy work that I know I spend a ton of time yeah. doing and I know a lot of people do. Yeah. And that it really is a an empowering, enabling thing for, for me as a creator of, of products and, and, and ideas um, that feels like I can just kind of do more and oftentimes with less. Um, and uh, I would say that's probably the thing I get, I get most excited about. And then I feel like when it, these tools are being applied in the right way of, on solid fundamentals, as we were talking about, you know, you're, you're probably making the ability to create better things that are more user-centric and, and user-aligned. Um, easier to do because the actual good practices become more democratized and ubiquitous instead of kind of the same traps that, you know, founders or product builders or, or researchers or, or marketers or whoever it is kind of fall down until they learn better from, you know, making mistakes. Um, I feel like that is kind of exciting to me to be able to um, uh, just spend more time in creative mode um, and, and less in, in monotonous busy work. Yep. that can be outsourced by my, you know, hundred high schoolers. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Yeah, totally. A lot of exciting stuff there. 
Well, thanks for being with us. Like, like Jay said, we, we love grain, happy customers, and I'm excited for, for the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.